How's everybody doing? You alright? Good. Um, I want to start this morning by asking you a, a question, um, and then I'm going to give you about 30 seconds or so just to turn to your neighbour, maybe somebody that you know, maybe somebody that you don't know, and you can quickly introduce yourselves, and uh, just to share, what's your initial kind of um, response to the question? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Okay? So, here's the question. What causes fights and arguments and falling out between people? What's the source? Why is it that you fall out with people and argue with them? Okay, if I can bring everybody back in, that'd be great. It'd be interesting to know what some of you have said. Maybe you can come grab me after the service and, and share with me what it was um, that you guys thought. It's a big question though, isn't it? Um, to, to try and start to get your head around. I imagine many of us in this room will be able to think of somebody who we struggle at times to get along with. So just kind of winds us up and rubs us up the wrong way and we just find ourselves either internally or maybe sometimes externally feeling rather irritated with them. And all of us will have had those times when uh, we, we think back and we can remember arguments with somebody and times when we've fallen out with somebody. And um, so when you try and answer that question then, what it caused those arguments? What caused those fights? What caused that person to, to wind you up and irritate you? What caused you to, to fall out? What was the source of it all? And I imagine most of us naturally would begin to point to the circumstances, to what it is that was happening. Well, he doesn't help around the house. She's never there for me. He broke his promises. Well, she won't listen to what I've got to say. He's never helps with the kids. You know, when we try and identify the source of the arguments and the fights and the falling out, the natural thing is to point to the circumstances as the source of the problem. And we've been going, uh, taking some time and going through the, uh, the book of James, the letter that James wrote in the Bible over recent weeks. And, and this question of what causes fights and arguments is one that James actually tries to answer for us. And where he goes with it might surprise you. You see, we all face conflict with people at different times in our lives. Even Jesus faced conflict with people in his life. So conflict isn't something we're ever going to be able to avoid. And sometimes those conflicts, those fights, those arguments are birthed out of a legitimate wrong. Legitimate harm that has been done to us, injustice that is going on around us. But, so, so not all fights are, and conflicts are evil. But James is writing this letter to a community of Christians who are falling out with one another. And so what he's dealing here is, with here is a very different kind of, of conflict. And this is what he writes in James 4, uh, verses 1 to 4. It should pop up on the screen behind me. He writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. 
you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Don't hold back, James, will you? Now, for those of you who are here for the first time, or maybe you're not familiar with the book of James, then you need to know that James never sugarcoats the truth. He's always this blunt. And I think what James is trying to get across to us is that the temptation for all of us is to think that the reason that we have conflicts and arguments, the reason that we have problems relationally is because of what they did. It's because of what they said. It's because of what they failed to do. It's all about what's going on around us and outside of us. We want to be able to point the finger and to blame someone or something else. But what James is saying is that so often we need to look beyond that and start to to look at what's going on, not outside of us, but within us. So often I think our relational difficulties stem not from the outward circumstances that, that we place the blame on, but from an internal conflict, from what James puts as the desires that battle within us. At the root of so much conflict, when you boil it down, is the reality that we want something, but we just can't get it. We want to be treated with respect, and yet we feel ignored and belittled. We want a lion in the morning, or to have a break from the housework, or from looking after the children. And yet no one's offering to help. We want to have the things that we see other people have and we see them enjoying and we just think it's unfair that we can't afford them. We want to feel loved and cherished and cared for and valued. And yet so often it seems like you're the last person that anyone thinks of. Now, I know if I think back through the the arguments and the the times that Rosie and I have fallen out in one way or another, it somehow comes back to something like this. We want something, but we just can't get it. And this is nothing new. You know, this drive to get what we want is something that seems to be built into each and every one of us from the moment that we're born. We're wired in a way that says, I want that. Give it to me. I deserve this. It's my right to have it. It's my right to be treated. And this isn't something unique to our particular time or our particular culture. Um, Listen to this quote from the Minnesota Crime Commission all the way back in 1926. In what you would imagine would be a different time when everybody was nice to each other. This is what they said. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He is dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal. It's a scary quote, isn't it? Not put together by a Christian organization, just put together by an organization that's trying to answer the question, why is there fights and quarrels? Why is there crime? What is it that drives people? 
And they pretty much come to the same conclusion as James. There is an internal battle within us. We are driven by our desires and the fact that we want what we do not have. It might be something that we want and it's simply a matter of being jealous because we see other people with it. Or it may be something that we feel is an injustice because we feel like we deserve it. We deserve to be treated in a particular way. or It's our right, we're entitled to it. We want the latest gadgets or the latest fashions. We want to be liked and accepted and included. And we feel slighted because we weren't invited to the party or to the dinner with friends. We feel a sense of injustice that we don't have the money that we think we should have. We're hurting at the fact that someone walked out on us who we thought cared for us. In one way or another, whatever it is, when you boil it down, comes back to the reality that we want what we do not have. And it causes this conflict within us. And sometimes that spills out into conflict with the people around us. And what's going on is there's this thing in me, just like there's this thing in you, and I'm I'm just going to call it self. And self is like a monster. A monster that can never be satisfied. And I keep thinking like you do, that if I keep feeding self that one day... Self is going to go, whoa, I'm full now. I'm satisfied. I've got what I want. I'm happy. I don't need any more money or prestige or respect or relationships. I'm full. We think that by feeding our desires, by feeding our appetites, we're going to satisfy them. But it's just not true. The reality is that you can never satisfy an appetite by the nature of the fact that it's an appetite. How many times have you finished a meal and you say, I'm so full that I could never eat again. And then 20 minutes later, you're in the cupboard looking for the next snack. An appetite's only ever temporarily satisfied. And then it's got to have more. You've got a reputation appetite. A prestige appetite, a relationship appetite, a money appetite, an acceptance appetite, a power appetite. We've got so many appetites, so many desires within us. We're just full of appetites and we we seem to operate on the premise that if I can just get enough of what it is that I want, then I'll be set, I'll be happy, I'll be, be satisfied, I'll be sorted. Life will be good. But the truth is that every time that you feed an appetite, all that happens is that the appetite grows. Do you know, a glutton thinks just as much about food as a man who's starving to death. The fact that the glutton has more than he could need, the fact that he's got more than he can imagine, doesn't mean that he stops thinking about food. If anything, food is all that he can think about. It consumes him. We've gotten tricked into thinking that if I can just get what I want, what I think that I need, what I think I deserve and is fair and my right, this measure of acceptance, this measure of approval, this measure of finances, then I'll be satisfied and I'll be okay. But James is saying that when you've done everything you can get, can to get everything that you want, that when all is said and done, you're still not going to be satisfied. You're still going to have that conflict inside and what will feel like the most natural thing to do will be to point the finger. 
and to blame someone or something else for your own discontentment. Say, if I just had that, or if they just treated me that way, I'd be, I'd be happy then. And James says when you're caught up in this kind of internal conflict that bubbles over then into conflict with the people around you, the last thing that you want to do then in that moment is to go to God for help. God is pushed away because you're eaten up with jealousy or with anger or with frustration. In those times when you you do manage to get yourself to look to God, you're so consumed with being right, with getting what it is that you want, that your motives are all wrong. And so naturally, God isn't going to respond in the way that you want him to. So that if the reality is that we're all born with these desires within us, from tiny babies fighting over a dummy, to the oldest we, we can be, And these desires lead to this internal conflict because we don't get what we want. How do we handle that? We can't get rid of the desires within us. Realistically, none of us are going to go through life and never face any kind of conflict. So what are we meant to do? And the incredible thing that James tells us, the thing which gives me hope in the midst of all of this, is how God responds to us, even when we make a mess of it all. Even when we get caught up being selfish inside and allow that to spill out to treat people in in bad ways around us. This is how James says God responds um, in the following verses. This is chapter 4, verses 5 to 10. He writes, Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is what scripture says. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I think the first couple of sentences here are incredible. James has just painted this picture of how we can be so selfish and how that selfishness leads us to putting what we want above everything else, even above God. And what's God's response to us? You'd think he might talk about how much God hates it and how angry it makes God. But instead he says that even when faced with everything that we've done wrong, all of our selfishness, all of our bad attitudes. God so longs to be in relationship with us, to be close to us, to see the spirit that he put within us, the life that he has put in us, being lived for him, being lived as he made us to live, being enjoying life to the fullest, that he does what? He gives us more grace. That's incredible. The message that God has for you today, the amazing good news for each and every one of us today is that no matter how we have messed up, no matter what mistakes we have made, no matter how trapped we may feel in a cycle of making bad decisions, God's response to you in that place, right where you are in the midst of all of the mess, 
It's to give you more grace. It's to fill you with his spirit. It's to empower you and to enable you to break free from that cycle and to live the life that he has for you. To step into freedom and to be the person that he made you to be. And all that you have to do is to receive the grace that he's offering. And James says there's just one condition to receive God's grace. He says God opposes the proud. He stands against the proud. Those who want to try and do it alone, those who rely on themselves, those who want to fight to get what they want, to get what they see as being their right. God opposes the proud. But he gives grace. He shows favor to the humble. If you want to position yourself to receive the grace that God is pouring out into your life and into the situations that you face, James simply says you need to humble yourself. You need to choose humility. Because the thing is that the desire that leads to conflict, whether it stays hidden in our hearts and we hide it from everybody around us, or whether it becomes something which spills out to conflict with the people around us, is all about pride. Pride says, I'm more important. I need to win. It's about me. I need to get what I'm entitled to and to be treated how I deserve. You need to do things the way that I think you should do them. And we can see this in the conflicts in our marriages, in our friendships, with our children, in our workplace. It's a well-worn path in all of our lives. It's the normal way that each one of us responds when things aren't the way that we think they should be. But if we're to receive God's grace, then we need to get off that well-worn path. And even when it goes against all of our natural instincts, we need to choose humility. To choose to submit ourselves to God. To give up fighting for what we want and allow God to be in charge. And James gives us a couple of practical pointers as to how we can do that. The first thing that he says is to resist the devil. The kind of language that that James uses here is the kind of way that you might speak about going into combat. How you fight and you, when we talk about fighting an army, we might talk about resisting an army. To stand against the enemy. To fight the enemy down and to give them no ground. James recognizes that we all face a battle with the desires and the temptations within us and that that is made all the harder by the devil who whispers at us continually. It's no big deal to indulge your pride, to fight for what you want. Why shouldn't we? We deserve to have it. We deserve to be treated that way. We'll feel better once we have this or that. There is a battle in our hearts and our minds every day. And James is saying, stand firm, fight back, resist the devil, don't give him any ground. And the great promise is that when we do that, he will flee from us. 
that when we submit to God, when we humble ourselves and come before God and choose to, to live his way and we stand against temptation and we stand against the devil, God's promise is that the devil will flee, that he will provide a way out from the temptation that we face. That in that moment, he will give us more grace. That he will empower us and enable us to live the life that he's calling us to. And because of this truth, and because of the Holy Spirit within us, because of this promise of more grace when we need it, the amazing thing is that, you know what? I don't have to sin anymore, and neither do you. You don't have to be trapped in a cycle of bad decisions. Now I'll stumble and I'll make mistakes, and so will you, but I don't have to. As I humble myself and I submit to God, and I resist the devil, God is faithful to provide a way out. He is faithful to his promises that the devil will flee. Never believe the lie that you are trapped. God always has a way out for you. The second thing that James encourages us to do as part of humbling ourselves and positioning ourselves to receive God's grace is to simply pursue God, to draw near to God. And the promise is that as we do that, God will draw near to us. You know, when you face conflict inside, when there is this temptation in front of you, when you can feel yourself starting to react in this defensive way, fighting for what it is that you want, in those times of conflict, he says, draw near to God. And if we're honest, though, isn't it that the hardest thing to do in that moment? You know, when life is hard, it can be so easy for our prayer time, for our time in, in the Bible, reading God's word, to be the first things that are squeezed out. And for spending time with godly people who are going to speak truth to us to become something that we don't even really want to do because we don't want to hear it. And James's encouragement to us is to not be like the people who do not have because they do not ask, because they pull away from God in the, in the place of conflict. Or not to be like the people who ask with the wrong motives because they're so consumed by what it is that they want, but simply to just draw near to God. To come to him with what you're facing, to submit to him what you're feeling and everything that you're going through. And know that as you do that, his promise is that he will draw near to you. That he will be there, he will be close to you, and he will never leave. So resist the devil. Draw near to God. And the last thing then that James encourages us to do is to recognize the mistakes that we've made and the bad attitudes that we've had. To own it. To take responsibility for it. And to realize just how serious it is. When James says, wash your hands... I think about all the different wrong things that we can do. Things that we say, things that kind of leave us dirty. Certainly leave us dirty as far as God sees us. And then when he goes on to say, purify your heart. It's taking it to the next level and saying, let's not just deal with the outward acts, but let's also deal with the wrong attitudes and the wrong thoughts and the conflict that goes on inside. He says, and when you get it, when you get how serious this is, when you get how your actions and your attitude grieve God and stop you from being able to receive the grace that he wants to pour into your life, you will be moved to grieve and mourn and wail. And you know, I think this goes completely against, it flies in the face of so much of what our culture is all about. 
You know, so many of the messages that we, we get through the media and the general pressure of society and the general attitude we come across is to live life in whatever way makes you happy. To have fun. Be light-hearted. Enjoy yourself. Be entertained. And those kind of times can be fantastic and they can be precious and God wants you to enjoy life. But as much as those times are great, the danger is that we then try to avoid anything else. And so we try to avoid what seems heavy or serious or makes us feel bad. And so it can be hard to get our heads around the idea that James is calling us to mourn and grieve and wail. It doesn't sound happy and fun, does it? Surely that's not what God would want for us. Yet in the moment when we humble ourselves and we fully understand the consequences of the wrong things that we do, how we grieve God, how what we have done caused Jesus to have to suffer and die on the cross in our place, how what we deserve is an eternity separated from God, the only right response to that is to weep and mourn and wail. There was a group of uh, Christians in the past called the Puritans. And one of the things that the Puritans would do is pray for tears. When they realized that they were taking the good things in their life for granted, their relationship with God for granted, and starting to feel like they deserved it and it was their right, and starting to feel that desire grow within them to fight for what it is that they want, They knew then that they'd lost sight of just how serious their rebellion against God was. They'd lost sight of just how serious the wrong things that they did and the wrong attitudes in their heart were. And so they prayed that God would bring them back to that place of mourning and wailing over the wrong things that they'd done and the wrong attitudes that they had. And I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who's prayed like that who has come to God and said, God, I just don't see my sin for what it really is. I don't see the wrong things that I do and and say and the wrong attitudes in my heart for what they really are. So will you bring me back to to that place of, of, of tears, that place of mourning, that place where I get it and I grieve and my heart is broken over what it is that I've done. And yet James says it's when we come to that place. When we really realize that we deserve nothing. When we weep and wail and humble ourselves before God. It's then that he will lift us up. It's then that we will experience his grace poured out into our life. It's then that we will truly come alive. It's when we realize how the wrong things that we do hurt God and grieve God. When we realize just how much that we have been forgiven and just how much God has on offer that we don't deserve. That we experience real joy. To know that right now, today, in this moment, forgiveness is available. Clean hands and a pure heart are available because of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
To know that in the face of all of the wrong things that we have done, that God's response is a heart cry that longs for relationship with us. Isn't that amazing? That God's response is to reach out to us wherever we are and to pour out more grace. Grace to enable us and empower us and to set us free. And what he asks of us this morning is that we simply position ourselves to receive it. To receive his grace, to receive the new life that he is offering by humbling ourselves before him. By submitting to God and saying, God, I put you in charge now. You're the one that I live for. I'm going to stop fighting all of my own battles. Striving after the things that I want. By standing against temptation and standing against the devil and all the lies that he whispers to you. Trusting that as you do that, the devil will flee from you and God will provide you with a way out. And by being honest with yourself and with God today. You know, as you come to commune about just how serious the wrong things that you have done are the bad attitudes within your heart and the pride that you have in your heart is. Maybe coming to God and saying, God, I know I've been taking it for granted. I know I don't get it. I know I've kind of got to that place where I just feel like, well, this is me. I'm a child of God. I deserve it. This is the way that life is. And we just take it for granted. So God, just come back and break my heart again. Bring me to that place of weeping and mourning where I realize again just how precious what you've done is and how little I deserve it. Help me to see things as you see them. Help me to realize that Jesus didn't just die for me, but he died because of me. You know, as you draw near to God this morning in that attitude of humility, his promise is that he will pour out more grace and that he will lift you up.